If we go back to the first slide there for me. All right. So um, I'm excited because I just learned about ChatGBT. My schedule has opened up, surprisingly, uh, next week. So if you want to get lunch, just let me know. I'm available now. Um, excited to see what comes of this. So uh, this morning we're continuing our supply list series, and this morning we're going to be talking about rulers. Um, I don't know if rulers show up anymore on school supply lists, but as a kid, I remember vividly rulers being a part of the school supply list program. And so when I thought about this, I thought about my sixth grade teacher. I had a math teacher who uh, everyone was afraid of for a lot of different reasons. She didn't hit us with a ruler. I want to go ahead and squash that. Um, But she was an intimidating woman who, who taught algebra. And I remember that in the sixth grade, I was in this class, and as she told my parents, Bryce took his ruler and took a pencil and spun it as hard as he could, making a helicopter-like motion. Now, this particular act got me two prizes. One, I got a new seat in the class. Uh, My seat was now very close to hers, uh, which I I didn't realize was a prize. I didn't really know who won that deal. Was it her or was it me? I got a new seat in the class that day, and I also uh, lost the ability to be in charge of my own ruler. And so from that day forward, if I needed a ruler, I actually had to ask the teacher if I could use the ruler for the assignment until I showed enough maturity to be in charge of my own ruler. And so now, as an adult, I buy as many rulers as I want uh, just to stick it to her. But rulers are something that we all kind of understand, right? It's a part of our day-to-day life, whether we realize it or not. Because rulers give us the distance between point A or point B. But measuring and rulers show up in a lot of different areas as well. So say, for example, your kid is sick and you're like, I need to take my kid to the pediatrician. And you look online and you see there's a contest where pediatricians are being ranked in the city right now. And I'm just spitballing here that I go and I vote for uh, Dr. Westbrook. Just, just, I'm spitballing there. Um, vote for all for kids. Dr. September Westbrook uh, is trying to be the best of Central Arkansas. So be sure to vote for her when you get a chance today. But you go to the pediatrician, and what is the first thing that you do when your kid goes through? They measure them. Or one of my favorite ideas of measuring is when you go to a theme park, and you, get, you want to ride the, what, this is called the extreme scream. But if you ever remember being a kid and going to a theme park, realizing that your height has to be a certain point just to get on that ride, and you see the Gravitron, and you're like, I've got to ride this beautiful beast, and get me in there because the... the <laughs> the food that I just ate earlier doesn't deserve to be in my body anymore. <laughs> but you've seen these images here, and you, you can kind of remember that as a kid. Maybe stepping on your tippy toes, maybe stretching your body just a little bit, just so that you are tall enough to get on this ride. And whether we realize it or not, we are constantly measuring ourselves every day. Whether that be with how we see ourselves compared to our peers, to our colleagues at work, Maybe it's our neighbors and their lifestyles or what we see on social media, whether that be Facebook or Instagram. You see the way that people live and you're like, why can't my life be like that? And we are measuring ourselves and comparing ourselves every day in those actions. And I don't think this is a new phenomenon by any means. I think that you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and see that humans were, were comparing themselves and realizing that they had things to measure up against. So if you go to Genesis chapter 3, we remember this story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And she says, God told us that we would die if we ate from this tree. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we know the story, right? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the most terrifying passage that we have in Genesis 3, they both realized that they were naked terrifying. Can you imagine the audacity of realizing you're naked in a situation? But it says, their eye, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. For me, when I look at tracing back this idea of when did we start as a, as a people, comparing ourselves to others, realizing that maybe we were different, I think it traces back to Genesis 3 beginning of time, humans have been comparing themselves and realizing that we should look at the way that other people live and compare ourselves to, to their lifestyles, to what, to what they have and what we don't have. And what's ironic and what's crazy is when you look at Scripture, Scripture is filled with God telling His people, you are enough. You have a place here. You don't have to earn this. Think, for example, when Jesus is baptized. If you go to Matthew chapter 3, we have the, the picture, the image of Jesus being baptized. And the text says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, it's easy to look at Matthew 3 and just think, This is a baptism passage. Jesus is baptized. Acts chapter 2, people are baptized. We should be baptized. It's easy to apply that solo understanding of this. But I want you to see the language that God uses towards Jesus. He says, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. The Son language is one that we, we often see in regards to Jesus with God. But I also want you to see how Jesus talks about people who follow Him later on. If we go to Matthew chapter 12, if you remember this story, Jesus' mother tries to get to Jesus, but the crowd is so large, she cannot push through. She's telling people, this is my son, I want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says these words in verses 49 and 50. Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus uses familial language here. I believe that every word that Jesus spoke was intentional. Every action that Jesus did was intentional. And that when we see these words, we should analyze them, reflect on them, and attempt to replicate them. And the reason why Jesus does this here is he's trying to remind his audience, you are enough. God has given you a place at the table. Quit comparing yourselves to what other people are doing, how they are living, how they are existing. Don't go to school and say, man, my friends have way much more than me, so much more than me. But realize that God has blessed you in different and beautiful ways as well. And we get this language here because I think God is attempting to use Jesus and the way that Jesus sees his disciples as a means to say, you are enough. But it's easier said than done because we still live in this world. We're still hooked on the internet. We still compare our lives on, on Instagram, on social media, all of those things. 
But even though humanity continues to struggle with this, God continues to communicate this message of quit measuring yourselves to others. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've experienced, what you've done. You are enough and you have a place in God's house. One of the the most popular parables that, that I hear is the parable of the prodigal son. This story happens in Luke chapter 15. As Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now this alone lets us know that this story is different. It's a teaching story. But Jesus is signaling that the younger son is doing something that is uncommon. It is against the culture at the time. The father would normally have to be dead to receive that inheritance, to receive that estate. And even more, that the older son would have first dibs at that, first rights. But the younger son has come to him and said, Father, go ahead and give me my property. Now again, we, we know this story. We know what happens. But the younger son takes that money and he goes and he spends and he lives this extravagant lifestyle that is not fulfilling. And when the money runs out, so does the fun. And all of a sudden, this This young son who thought he had everything now realizes that he doesn't have anything. So the text picks up in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. See, even in this individual's tragedy, there is comparison going on. He's comparing his current status with that of his father's servants. See, even in pain and agony, we find ourselves measuring up against what other people are experiencing. And so the younger son says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Then the son said to him, Father, so he goes back home and the son says to the father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've read this parable a lot of times in my life. And that's still the most painful verse to read. The, the agony and the frustration and just the despair that the younger son feels. That he no longer can identify as his man's son. He's like, I've done everything wrong that I could do. And a lot of times we read these stories knowing the endings, and I, I get that. That's, that's how we, we study Scripture. But just for a moment, like a lot of us are probably like, yeah, sorry. You did it. You lost everything. You wanted your inheritance. I gave you the inheritance. It didn't go the way that you wanted to. Sorry, buddy. That's where the story becomes powerful and beautiful. Because the Father doesn't do that. The Father doesn't respond in the way that we often want to respond in these social situations where you're getting what you deserved. Because here in the story, what the Father does is the Father said to His servants, quick, I bring, bring the best robe and put it on Him. Now pause for a moment and just see that the text goes from 21, that Father, I no longer am worried to be called your son, to the next verse, bring the best robe and put it on Him. Do you see that there's no discussion There's no hesitation from the Father. There's no like, hey, we got to talk about this. I want to see kind of your finances right now. Tell me about your experience. None of that happens. 
the father immediately realizes that his son is home, and he says, get me the best robe. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Do you see the movement in this story? That that is how God views each of you. That no matter where you've been, what you've done, that when, God, when you come back to God, God is like, let's party. Bring the best robe for him. Bring the fattened calf. Let's celebrate your return because you don't have to measure yourself up to what other people are doing. All you have to do is be the best person that God has created you to be. I love talking about food, and it's, it's, it's my weakness. The second that someone talks about food or shares a food story, I'm all in. Uh, don't, please don't text me your pictures, then I lose all concentration and focus, and I start planning out my meals the whole week out. But when I find a story about food that fits here, I love to share it. And so this morning I want to share a little story about Truett Cathy, the creator of Chick-fil-A. Truett Cathy created Chick-fil-A in a simple way. He just wanted to make chicken sandwiches. That is kind of how the business began. But when Chick-fil-A was really gaining momentum and really starting to say, oh, we could be like a big company that controls families across the country. Um, When Chick-fil-A was really kicking off, they had a major competitor. And it wasn't really who you would think it was. Like, it wasn't McDonald's, it wasn't Burger King, uh, it wasn't other better places like Popeye's. Um, I'm just saying, chicken sandwich wars. But it wasn't any of those. The major competitor at the time that Chick-fil-A was really gaining momentum was a place called Boston Market. And at the time, they were called Boston Chicken. So, if you're familiar with the the chicken Boston Wars of whatever year this was, Truett Cathy... his, his board was really concerned about the momentum that Boston Chicken had at the time. And Boston Chicken, or Boston Market, had put out all of these projections and goals that the company wanted to have. And then one person said that the Boston Chicken wanted to have a billion dollars of sales. And this, this shook Chick-fil-A to its core. And so the story, the legend behind the Chick-fil-A-Boston Chicken Wars, is that at a board meeting... The entire board was fighting. They said, there's no way that we can let Boston chicken become the best chicken in the country. We're Chick-fil-A. Like, we've got to do this. And these men were arguing about the ideas, the plans. What are we going to do to stop Boston Market? And the, the legend is that Truett Cathy stood up in his chair and slammed his fist on the board table. Chick-fil-A sauces went everywhere. It was a mess. But Chick-fil-A sauce went everywhere. I'm adding to that. I don't think that's accurate. But he slammed his hands on the the board table. He said, gentlemen, what we need to do is worry about being better. If we become better, our audience will demand that we become bigger. I love that story. Because often when we compare ourselves and we measure ourselves to what other people are doing, what they have, what they are experiencing in life, often what we are really saying is, I want these bigger, better lifestyles. But what God calls us to do is to be better, to be who God created us to be. We see this in the passage that Stephanie read just a little while ago from Galatians chapter 6 
where Paul writes to the church of Galatia, each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. First line is, worry about yourself. Reflect on who you are, what you are doing in your world with the skills, the talents, the passions that God has placed on your heart. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, Paul continues in verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I think the words of Paul directly connect with the teachings of Truett Cathy. That so often we are worried about what other people are doing. Often I, I do that as a minister. One of the things that I often fall uh, guilty of is I look at what other churches are doing and I look, I love to find a bulletin online. And what I'll do is I'll look and I'll say, okay, how many members did they have this week? Or I'll look at their finances. I'm, I'm a nerd. If I can get a PDF of a church's bulletin, I'm going to look at it. I'm not going to lie. But what I'm doing there is I'm comparing other situations. And what I should be concerned about from the teachings of Paul is I should be worried about being the best minister that I can be to you all and not worried about what other churches or congregations are doing. And in the same way of applying that to our lives, that is what we need to do as well, is we need to be worried about being the best people that we can be with the talents that we were blessed with. If we do that, then we can do good. And if we become better, our audience will demand that we become bigger. So this week, as I've done each week, is I've asked you to do just a small challenge. Sometimes it's, it's reaching out to somebody. Sometimes it's just telling somebody that you care about them. This week, what I would love for you to do is to really reflect on how you measure yourself with other people or social situations. So this week, if you find yourself on Instagram, you're scrolling through and you're looking at somebody's new truck or their new house or their lifestyle, and you feel that, like, that feeling of jealousy of like, man, why can't I have that? What I would love for you to do is to turn off the phone for a little bit And then physically write down the things that you know you're blessed with. Like actually take a moment and write down, man, I've got a great family. I've got a a great church. Great minister would be good on there too, but that's up to you. But to really reflect on the blessings that God has for you. Because I promise you when you realize and when you start reflecting on what God has blessed you with, you'll stop comparing yourself to other people. And when you stop doing that, then you can really do good works. Let's stand and sing together.